Let's open our Bibles tonight to Second Peter chapter number three. Second Peter chapter number three. A passing comment I'll make. I rejoice in hearing of that uh, fellow getting born again. Man, I'm glad. I remember reading something years ago uh, that a commentator wrote. He was talking about the thief on the cross and um, that trusted in the Lord, and and the Lord replied, said, "Today shalt thou be with me in paradise." But uh, made an interesting observation. Said, as far as he could tell, there's only one deathbed conversion experience in the word of God and uh, he he made this comment this observation he said God made sure there was one in there he said there is one so that none might despair but there is only one so that none might presume amen isn't that good Uh, I'm glad hey he'll save any and all that'll come to him even on that deathbed Uh, but we need to be reminded too man that's the exception not the rule and what a great tragedy that is to let our lives pass till there's nothing left. It's all spent up before we give it to the Lord. But I'm glad he can save them even at the very last moment. Second Peter chapter number 3. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read down to verse number 18. Second Peter chapter 3, verse number 1. The Word of God says, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens, for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless and account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, 
fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight, Lord. What a blessing to get to be here with this group of believers, Lord. It's home. It's a place of refuge. It's a place of comfort. It's a place where iron sharpeneth iron, where we can gain strength for the journeys that lay ahead of us. And I pray that tonight as we approach your word, we would approach it with a hallowed reverence, Lord, recognizing it's not the words of men, but it's the very indeed inspired word of God. Let us yield to it that authority in our lives tonight as we allow you to work in us that which would bring you the most glory. Lord, I pray that your perfect will would be done in every heart and life in this place tonight, and we'll be sure to give you the praise for it. Lord, we love you, and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Second Peter is largely focused on the concept and the truth of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we use the terminology, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to, if we're to be biblical in our perspective, acknowledge that there are two different aspects to that second coming. There is what we call the rapture. Now, the word rapture is not found in the Bible, but the truth of the rapture most certainly is. Uh, whenever Christ was ascending to the heavens, the angels said that this same Jesus shall in like manner return unto you. Now, what does that mean? He's going to look the same. He's going to seem the same. He'll be familiar uh, to those that know him in that fashion and in that way. And his form of coming will be the same. He'll be coming in the clouds. And yet we find when we read Revelation chapter 19 that there is another scene of the Lord's return uh, that is presented before us where he is coming, uh, not as a meek Galilean, not as the tender Savior, but as the conquering king. He's coming back on the back of a white horse with his vesture dipped in blood, with a name written on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords, and the word of God proceeding out of his mouth like a sharp two-edged sword. You say, now, preacher, what does that signify to us? Well, it tells us that when we use the terminology second coming, we have to be a little bit descript in how we describe it. There's the rapture, and then there's what we've often called the appearing of the Lord Jesus. The rapture is going to be an event that, as far as the world's perspective, is secret in nature. The world won't be aware uh, that what has occurred has been a rapture. Now, they'll know that there are people there that weren't there before, but they'll be given a strong delusion to believe a lie, some sort of explanation for why these people are missing. But the Bible tells us that whenever the Lord appears in Revelation chapter 19, that every eye will behold Him, that they'll all look upon Him. Uh, the Lord Jesus said that His coming would be like the lightning from the east to the west, that all men would see it, would behold it. So it's obvious there's two appearings that are being spoken of, or two returns that are being spoken of in the Bible. Peter has in mind the appearing of the Lord Jesus primarily. He uses a term here in this passage, the day of the Lord or the day of God. And these phrases typically are associated with God judging the world in righteousness. Peter describes one element or one aspect of this judgment of God, and that is the destruction of this current world, that uh, the elements will melt with fervent heat and the works that are therein shall be burned up. 
Uh, Now, if I read my Bible correctly, and I believe I do, it appears to me as though this event will take place while uh, all of those that that, uh, have ever lived will be gathered at the great white throne judgment. Now, you and I as born-again believers won't be there to be judged, but we'll be there to bear witness to the things that are taking place. And John says it this way about this moment, that from whose face, talking about the man on the throne, the God on the throne, from whose face heaven and earth fled away. I believe that's John. John describing this very same event when this world will be destroyed or some people prefer the term renovated by the judgment fire of God. Now, uh, I'll tell you, when I read through this passage of Scripture, Peter deals with several different perspectives on Bible prophecy. Let me go ahead and tell you tonight, I love Bible prophecy. I believe this is a prophetic book. I believe this book is more current than tomorrow's newspaper. I believe its inerrancy and its inspiration is not just confined to philosophical principles of the human condition, but to the very distinct word and words that are given and to the very events that are described. As such, I am a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial rapture. I believe that the next thing on God's calendar is the rapture of the church followed by a seven-year period of tribulation in which God is uh, pouring out judgment upon this world, is purging Israel as a people and exacting judicial payment upon them and that that will close and commence with that appearing uh, that is described in Revelation chapter 19. But when I talk about a perspective on prophecy, I don't so much mean what boxes do you tick and, and, and where do you line up all of these events. But rather, I mean, what does our opinion and idea of prophecy do to our life? What is the lens through which we examine those truths? When we come to Second Peter chapter 3, we'll find that there are three perspectives that are mentioned. The first thing we see is the cynical perspective on Bible prophecy. Verse number 3 says this, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. The world's idea about Bible prophecy is that it's all fairy tales. That there's no truth to it. A great many even so-called theologians would tell you that it's all just abstract and it's all just theoretical. I'll tell you this, if you're going to deny the reality of Bible prophecy, you're going to have to take at least a third of this book and throw it in the garbage. You're also going to have to rewrite all of the history of Israel because prophecy was always, unless there was something in the text that would preclude it, was always fulfilled literally. And as such, the the world rejects the idea of inspired prophecy. There's many reasons that they have to do that uh, for their own world system and their own world view. Uh, But it doesn't change the fact that this idea of criticism of the word of God, and I don't mean complaining about it, but I mean viewing it through the perspective of it being untrue is nothing new. Peter says, you know, there's always been some that have scoffed at the veracity of the word of God. And Peter notes three things. Number one, he notes how the scoffers mock. He says, in the last days, scoffers will appear. They'll be walking in their own lusts. And that really is the key of it. They want to walk in their own lusts so they can't accept that there's a righteous God that will judge them one day. And here's what they'll say, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. By the way, this is just free. It's not a part of my message, but this is the reason that the uh, lie of evolution is so destructive to a Christian's theology. 
Because it claims that things have always been the same as they were from the very beginning. That's not what your Bible teaches. Your Bible teaches that at one time the earth was without form and and void. That in the beginning was God and nothing else. The, uh, The first thing that happened was God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. But that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. That God spoke and said, let there be. The evolutionary lies directly antithetical and incompatible with a literal biblical view. It's impossible. But the scoffers mock it nonetheless. And so it's no wonder that uh, in these days that we're living in, when the lie of evolution, which was always an untested and fantastic theory, has been embraced and accepted as dogma more fiercely than any religious creed ever has, has complete uniformity of acceptance in all higher uh, academic circles, even though there are holes big enough to drive a semi-truck through in it. They still do it. Why do they do that? Well, they're walking after their own lusts. And so we see how the scoffers mock. And then Peter describes what the scoffers miss. Verse number five, he says, for this, they are willingly ignorant of that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. In other words, he is reminding them of the creation account, how that God created the heavens and the earth. And when he did, he separated the waters uh, and and, and laid boundaries to them and, and pushed it back. And there was a time that continents and these things existed. And then he said, not that we don't have continents today, but to say there will always these things. Verse six, he then says this, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? Well, Peter's saying, don't they remember there was a time when everything was not always the same? They say, well, things have always been the same from the very beginning. But he says, that's obviously not true. God created an earth and and put boundaries to the seas. But then there came a time that God poured out judgment upon this world and did so through a universal flood. Evidently, these things have not always stayed and remained the same. And he uses that as a precedent to then say in verse 7, but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Peter says, here's what the scoffers miss. Things have not always been the same. God once poured out his judgment upon this world. There was a time when God severely disrupted the state of this natural world and a time when he scourged from the face of the earth all of human life, save those eight souls. And that same God that promised and kept his promise has once again promised he will judge this world by fire. It says in verse 8, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Here's something the scoffers miss is that God's not bound by time. Uh, God's not having to run on their clock or their calendar. And the idea is not necessarily that we go through and try to draw out some kind of, of, of chart to illustrate how corresponding the days of creation, there'll be this many millennia and this. That's missing all of it. What Peter says is what they don't understand is that God's not bound by time. To them, they, they think it's been a long time, but it's not been a long time to God. Uh, God don't run on time like you and I run on time. But he says in verse number nine, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. The scoffers say, hey, where's the promise of his coming? All this time has passed. Peter says all that time has not passed, not in God's economy. The Lord's not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
Here's what the scoffers miss. They miss the fact that God has indeed at one time poured out his judgment upon this world. He has a precedent, a history, a record of having done so. He has reserved this earth now under fire and under judgment. They may feel like it's been a long time, but it's not been a long time because God is not bound by time. And instead, they should look at it and say, well, I guess we have a long-suffering and merciful God that must not be done trying to work in the hearts of men. So we see how the scoffers mock and we see what the scoffers miss. But verse 10 reminds us of who the scoffers will meet. He says, but the day of the Lord will come. It will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. In other words, every infidel can shake their fist at the heavens, decry the Bible as merely a Bronze Age work of men's ingenuity and literature, but it does not change the fact that this is the Word of God and the Word of God has promised there is a coming day of judgment upon this earth. Sooner or later, they're going to have to face... That reality. So I see a cynical perspective on Bible prophecy. But then I'm reminded that there's also what we could call a carnal perspective on Bible prophecy. You know, I found this to be true, and I hope I articulate this the right way. You know, every so often Hollywood will make a movie about the end of the world, and it sells just as good as the ones about romantic comedies and horror movies and everything else. And, uh, you know, this world has a fascination with the notion of its demise and of its doom. And I have found that even believers, there can be a danger of developing a carnal perspective about Bible prophecy. It's possible to just simply be infatuated with the notion of it without it ever really transforming our lives, to develop an academic relationship with these things. Uh, You can find any number of snake oil salesmen on TV, and, and most of them traffic in prophecy. And there's a reason why you ain't got to be born again to find prophecy interesting. You don't have to be right with God to find prophecy interesting. I'm not saying finding it interesting is wrong. I'm not saying it's unspiritual to find it interesting. But I'm saying this, that there is a carnal infatuation with Bible prophecy. And it's been amazing to see how that the emphasis on prophecy as opposed to personal holiness has exploded as carnality has taken over the church in the West. Everybody wants to talk about what does this mean and what does that mean and how many days and this and that and, and, and who's this person going to be and how's this going to transpire. And, and there's all this fascination with it. And somewhere in the midst of all of it, we've missed what prophecy was all about in the first place. Prophecy was never about uh, tickling your intellectual curiosity. It's not why God gave prophecy in the word of God. He didn't give it because he felt like you were bored and needed something to illuminate and interest you. He gave prophecy so that it could transform the way that we live and the way that we behave. So when I say a proper prophetic perspective, I don't necessarily mean are you pre-millennial, post-millennial, all-millennial, no-millennial. That's what most churches around here are. They're no-millennial. I'm a pre-millennialist. That's biblical. It's correct. I don't mean are you pre-tribulationist. I'm a pre-tribulationist. That's biblical. That's correct. Uh, I believe in the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe it's the next thing on the calendar. I'm not waiting for any prophecies to be fulfilled, no temples to be built, no heifers to be bred. I think the next thing to happen is the rapture of the church. I think that's biblical. I believe that's correct. But I don't so much mean how you cross your T's and dot your I's. I mean, what do you do with what you believe about Bible prophecy? See, there's a cynical perspective and a carnal perspective. 
But Peter then gives us a biblical perspective on Bible prophecy. There's a trend in our text. I don't know if you noticed it. But three separate times there's a phrase that's used. Look at verse 11. Peter says, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Verse 14, he says, wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Verse 17, he says, ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before. And that's what prophecy is, right? Seeing ye know these things before. Beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. In other words, Peter says a biblical perspective on prophecy will inform and transform the way we live our everyday lives. My goal is not to get you to quit paying attention to prophecy. We are commanded to pay attention to prophecy. But my goal is to allow that prophecy to not merely be an intellectual infatuation, but instead to be a powerful spiritual truth that changes the way you live your everyday life. Here's how John says it in 1 John chapter 3. He says, Beloved, now we're the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Then listen to what he says. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. John said, you really believe that? It's going to change the way that you live. Peter says, hey, if we really see things this way, then how will that affect the way we live our lives? Notice in our text there are three ways corresponding to these three usages of this term seeing that Peter uses that show us how prophecy should transform the way that we live. Notice number one what he says, verse number 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. In other words, seeing there's coming a day of judgment in which this world and this world system is going to be destroyed, that this is not a static state of existence. This is not an eternal system that this world has. But there's coming a day it's all going to be dissolved. It's all going to pass away. He says this, What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Let me say number one tonight, that a proper biblical perspective will change our conversation. Now, Peter uses that term conversation in verse 11, in all holy conversation and godliness. But it doesn't mean what we are familiar with the term conversation meaning, or we might say it means more than that. When we think of a conversation, we think of two people having a dialogue one with another. But it's interesting, you know, what is a conversation and what is dialogue? Dialogue is the externalizing of things that exist internally. When I speak words to you, those words exist inwardly in my heart and mind before they are ever communicated to you outwardly. And we're having a conversation so that I might communicate something that I know to be true in my heart to you, that you might understand it and apprehend it. In the Bible, the term conversation most often deals with the idea of our outward walk or testimony. Taking that which exists internally through the transformed life of Jesus Christ in us and externalizing that through behavior and through conduct. Peter says this, it's going to change the way we walk. It's going to change how we live. Again, one of the great sad testimonies to Christianity today is that so much bad living So much low living, low standards, low holiness is associated with much of the prophetic movement of the day that we're living in. A great many of those, and you see this predominantly in the charismatic movement, which has an infatuation with the notion of Bible prophecy. 
And very often the standards of personal holiness are next to none. Often their music is just like the world's music. Their dress is just like the world's dress. Their attitudes, their activity, their conduct. It looks exactly like the rock concert you go to on Saturday night, just on Sunday morning. Now, shouldn't it be that if we really apprehend Bible prophecy the way that God intends us to? Hey, you know, the Bible says that the spirit of prophecy is the spirit of Jesus Christ. If we're really getting prophecy the way we ought to be getting prophecy, it ought to transform and make us more like Jesus Christ. Notice he gives three things in our life it should produce in our conversation. Number one, holiness ought to be produced. He says, uh, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? You really believe Jesus is coming soon. That's going to cause you to live in a holy manner. Just as John said, every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Uh, uh, low living and, and, and raucous behavior and unrighteousness and worldliness in our conduct does not bespeak that we believe he's coming soon. If we really believed he was coming soon, we would change the way that we behave. I, I remember when I was growing up, my daddy came home at 3.15 every day. You could set your watch by when he would walk through the door. And we got a lot better behaved after noon than we were before noon. We knew he was coming home soon. And we had to sort of balance this. The level of our misbehavior, uh, there's probably an Excel spreadsheet for this, somehow balanced against the length of mom's memory. You couldn't do anything so bad that she wouldn't forget before 3.15. You had to maintain a sort of symbiotic relationship between those two realities. Uh, we straightened up because we knew daddy was coming home. We was going to have to see him. And it's not that it wasn't joyful, but it could be painful if we hadn't been living right. Man, you say, well, preacher, I believe he's coming soon. Would other people know that by your life? With holiness. Then notice number two, look at verse 12. He says, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. I would say this, our conversation with holiness, but also with hastiness. Now, when I say hastiness, I don't necessarily mean recklessness, but I'm fascinated by what Peter says. I understand what looking for is, right? I understand we're to be looking for for this day to come. and, And for us, the most imminent step in that is looking for the rapture. But then he says, hasting unto. Now, wait a minute. We're not waiting on me to go to him. We're waiting on him to come to us. But it's interesting, you know, at some point our family will take a vacation. And, and when we've taken vacations in the past, the I don't know about you, but I like to try to have everything packed and ready. It's rare that really happens, but but I like to try. And I start a week or two ahead, start planning things out and thinking things out and trying to organize things. And, and you know, I mean, I only pack a suitcase. My wife has to pack the whole house. But that suitcase that I'm taking, I try to get everything sorted out and, and get everything ready, and, uh, and and what am I doing? Well, I can't make it show up any quicker, but I can try to run towards it hard as I can. I can't make it get here a moment sooner than it's going to arrive anyway, but I can spend my time focused on that day. When we get up, uh, pack up the car, head out, leave, uh, wind up wherever we're going to go, I, I can do everything that I can do to ready myself and prepare myself and focus on that coming moment. I think when Peter says looking for and hasting unto what he's saying is that we ought to pull our tent stakes up 
and start heading that way. Well, we ought to untether ourselves from this world and this system and be living. You remember when the children of Israel, whenever they ate the Passover, they was to eat it with their shoes on their feet and their coat on their back. Why is that? Because they were a traveling people. They was going to eat that meal and they was going to head out the door. And so they were to live ready on that night to leave at any moment. I think, man, we ought to be living ready to leave at any moment with holiness, with hastiness. But then look at verse 13. Nevertheless, he says, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. I'd say our conversation with holiness and hastiness, but also with hope. We should not allow. Hey, listen, uh, we're not victims of Bible prophecy. We're victors in Bible prophecy. Hey, we're more than conquerors through him that loves. Sometimes a, a carnal infatuation with, with Bible prophecy can lead to a forlornness and a discouragement. Sometimes we'll say things, and this is absolutely biblically true, we'll say we know things are going to get worse before they get better, and, and you know, thing, everything's just marching along to how God said it would, and I understand that. Listen, I'm not, I'm, I'm not waiting for the next great new plan and new deal to come and renovate us into the kingdom. I've read my Bible. I know that evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. I'm aware of that. But there can be a sort of finalism and fatalism that can infect our perspective if we don't have hope of this coming day. There's a lot of Christians that have just thrown up their hands and said, well, I ain't going to do nothing. I'm just going to wait on it all to blow up and wait on him to show up. Hey, listen, that's not why God didn't give you Bible prophecy so that you could punch out of the clock and quit on him. That's not why he said, occupy till I come. He said, keep serving me, keep living for me. And if we have a proper perspective, it's going to give us hope in our heart. So he speaks about our conversation. Then notice number two, he speaks about our consecration. He says in verse 14, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, if you're really looking for this day to come, here's what you're going to do. He says, Be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Now, when I'm talking about our conversation, I'm talking about our external walk, our testimony, how we're living in the world. But when I say the word consecration, I mean our internal relationship with God. So in other words, it's going to change how I live externally, but it's also going to change how I love him internally, my relationship to him. And notice three things that it'll produce. Number one, there's consecration regarding peace with the Lord. Now, commentators are a little bit uh, disagreeing about this phrase in peace. Does it mean, you know, peace with one another? Does it mean sort of uh, positional peace with God as in being born again, being saved? I'll tell you what I believe. I believe it's talking about peace in your relationship with the Lord. You really believe he's coming at any moment. Wouldn't that make you want to make sure there's nothing between you and him? Hey, be found of him in peace. what, What a disgrace. And, and, and listen, far be it. It'll probably be the case with me because I know how wicked I am. But but what a disgrace it would be for the first thing him to have to do when he sees us is tell us straighten up. For the first thing him to have to do is just weep and sigh and say, why'd you never serve me? Why are you living this way? Why am I finding you in this condition? I'd say peace with the Lord in our consecration. Then notice number two, purity before the Lord. He says, without spot and blameless. Now, that's interesting. I I don't think any of us can ever in and of ourselves be without spot and blameless. That comes only and singly from the justification that comes through Christ Jesus. But I do recognize that though judicially in my walk with the Lord, 
as a, as a born again believer, I'll never again be judged as a sinner. That was dealt with on Calvary and God's not waiting for me to get to heaven to stack my good works on the scales against my bad works and find out if he's going to let me in. However, I do find that even in my everyday life, I'm being judged as a son of God in my relationship with the Lord. And there's coming a day I'm going to be judged as a servant of God at the judgment seat of Christ. And so though my relationship with God in the sense of my status with him being viewed as a child of God, though that can never be disrupted, though that can never be soiled or stained, my relationship with God in the sense of my daily fellowship with him absolutely can be disrupted. It absolutely, man. And I mean, let's just be honest. There's times you're right with God and times you're not. And I'm thankful my salvation is not dependent upon uh, me being, you know, dying when I'm right with him or him coming back when I'm right with him. I'm glad I'm safe and secure in the salvation of the Lord. But that doesn't mean that I want to live a filthy life. Because one of these days he's coming back. And when he does, I, I, I want to. Here's how the old timers used to say it. Keep short accounts with God. What happens when you sin? Well, hopefully you acknowledge it, you recognize it, you confess it to the Lord, you ask forgiveness, and if we'll confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you say, well, now, preacher, nobody can stay perfect with God. No, but you can stay close to God. You can't stay perfect in the eyes of God, but when you sin, you can go to Him, ask for forgiveness, and ask to be cleansed. So purity before the Lord. And then notice what he says in verse 15. He says, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Now, this is interesting. He's already used this terminology in, in a more broad sense earlier in the text. He, he's told us that, uh, that the long-suffering of God is, is salvation, that he's not slack concerning his promise, but he's long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But when he uses the terminology here, account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, he's not talking about in the perspective of the world, but he's talking about in the life of the believer. He goes on to say this, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. Now, Paul was not short on references to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you really think about what was predominantly focused on in the Pauline epistles, it always invariably had to do with the growth of the believer. Here's what I think Peter means when he says, account the long-suffering of our Lord as salvation. I don't think he's necessarily saying, well, God's long-suffering because he wants to save more sinners. That is true. He's already said that earlier in the text. But I think here he's talking about believers, and what he's saying is that God is patient and long-suffering, giving you this amount of time that the salvation that he's purchased and procured for you might be worked out and manifested in your life in a greater and deeper way. One of the things I love about Paul, Paul didn't know the word quit. And he makes that evident in Philippians chapter 3 when he talks about it. Not as though I were already perfect or had already attained, uh, but he said, I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended. Paul viewed his life as a constant pursuit of the Lord. I think if we really believe the Lord's coming back, we're not going to be going the opposite direction of the will of God for our lives. We're going to be going concurrent with the will of God for our lives. 
Hey, listen, if we believe that one of these days this vile body will be made like in his glorious body, if we believe that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's dear son, and we believe he could come back at any moment, and we really do believe there's coming a day we're going to meet him, that's not going to cause us to drag our feet and try to maintain in the energy of our flesh our own self-reliance. That should cause us to instead try to lean more heavily on the Lord and cause our lives to be more conformed unto him. So in other words, in our conversation, in our consecration. But notice the final one, verse 17. He says, ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before. Now, that's if that's that's almost a clinical definition of prophecy, knowing these things before. And he's saying, seeing that ye know these things before, what should that produce in you? Well, he says this, beware, lest ye also be led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if I have a proper prophetic perspective, it's going to develop a change in my conversation or my outward testimony, my walk. Not only that, but in my consecration, my relationship to the Lord, my love for him, but also in my consistency. It's going to produce faithfulness. If we really believe he's coming back and he could come back at any moment then wouldn't that bespeak a consistency? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that beckon a consistency in our life? You don't know when he's coming back. He'd come back at any moment. Now, I don't say this, try to scare you. Well, don't let him catch you. Hey, listen, uh, he already knows what you're doing. And you're going to have to answer for it one way or the other. But if our desire is to be found of him in peace, and we believe that he could come back at any moment, then wouldn't that suggest to us that we should maintain a consistent, faithful Christian walk? What should we be faithful in? Well, he mentions three things. Number one, in our doctrine. He says, beware lest ye also being led away with the error of the wicked. In other words, if we really believe he's coming back, we're going to study his book. We're going to know what he believes. And we're going to want to stay true to his word. I'll tell you this. Believing this book won't get you very far in this world. But it's going to be all that matters in the world to come. What you believe about this Bible, you'll probably not get asked about it in a job interview. You'll probably not get tested on in a university. But one of these days, you're going to stand before God. One of these days, this old world system is going to be folded up like a blanket. That's what the book of Hebrews says. It's going to be folded up like a blanket and, and, and put in, and, and probably more like a fitted sheet. Amen. You, ever, you know, you ever tried to fold a fitted sheet? Does anybody know how to fold a fitted sheet? Raise your hand. Bunch of liars is what you are. Nobody knows how to fold a fitted sheet. I'll tell you how you fold a fitted sheet. Guess right here. Into the closet. You don't know how to fold a fitted sheet. One of these days, God's going to fold this old world system up like a sheet. And he's going to unroll a new one. And when that comes, what you believe about this book is going to be all that matters. If we really believe he's coming back, it's going to produce in us a consistency in not only what we believe about the Bible, but how we apply it to our lives. We're going to want to be biblical people. If we really believe he's coming soon, we're going to want to be biblical people. I would say not only in our doctrine, but in our dedication. Here's what happens when you're led astray with the error of the wicked. You fall from your own steadfastness. I find this. Paul said it this way. He said, evil communication corrupteth good manners. You know what that means? Bad doctrine leads to bad living. It does. Bad doctrine leads to bad living. Now, that doesn't mean that good doctrine ensures good living. Plenty of people that believe right and live wrong. But you won't believe wrong and live right either. 
You say, oh, well, preacher, I had, I knew a guy. Well, I had a mamma. Well, I had an uncle. I had a native. Listen, I'm not saying you have, have to have every little thing right. I'm not saying you have to agree with me about every single thing. But I am saying this, that if we allow our life to be infiltrated and overcome by heresy, by bad doctrine, sooner or later it will corrupt our love for him and devotion to him. I'll tell you the people that are reaching out and touching a broken world. It's people that believe right about the Bible. Now, there's a lot of gloss and a lot of chrome and a lot of noise and a lot of movements that are not biblical in their belief and in their foundation. But you really want to know? You really want to know who's out there trying to change lives? It's people that believe right in the Word of God. Who's the people out there witnessing? Oh, you say, oh, preacher, the JWs and the Mormons. Yeah, I've had them knock on my door. Terrify them if you actually answered. They're not really interested in trying to convert you to JWism or Mormonism. I mean, if they can do it, they'll do it. But really, they're just trying to run out the clock and do their religious formality and duty. That's why, by the way, you won't find them witnessing unless they're at your front door. The people that are really trying to do something for God is people that believe right about this book. Evil communication corrupteth good manner. We'll want to be right in our doctrine, in our dedication. We'll want to be steadfast. We'll want to keep serving him, keep living for him. But not only that, notice verse 18. He says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we want consistency in our doctrine. Believe right. Believe what's true. What's true in this book does not change. Believe what's right. In our dedication, we'll want to stay serving him. But not only that, in our development. I'll tell you this, I want to grow till he comes back. I don't want to stagnate. I don't want to be like that scummy old pond that there ain't no fresh water in. I want, I want to keep growing in him. If I'm to believe that I can keep growing, and the only thing that makes it impossible for us to grow is unwillingness to grow. Nobody's arrived. Paul said, I've not yet arrived, and ain't none of you or me the Apostle Paul. So if he says I've not, you ain't either. Neither have I. We've not arrived. You know that. I mean, listen, I don't have to drive that home. You know that's. So here should be your desire. You believe he's coming back? You ought to want to keep growing in him until he comes. Keep growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, listen, there's things you don't know about him. It ought to be your heart to know him better. There's ways in which he's not manifest in your life. Though the grace of God is at your disposal, it is rarely at the driver's seat of many of our lives. So you can always grow in knowledge. You can always grow in grace. You can always keep developing further. And if we have a right biblical perspective on prophecy, it's going to change the way that we live our lives. So I wonder this question. I mean, listen, I, I think we're a pretty reasonably biblically literate church. That's the truth. I believe most people in here know what they believe. Uh, there's a small s- group that even knows why they believe it. <laughs> and I think that's wonderful. That's better than 99.9% of churches that's out there. But I wonder if it's changing the way that you live. Or is it just a, a, a logbook of catechisms and, and spiritual potpourri? Uh, has it prepared you for biblical trivial pursuit, but not for the second coming of the Lord? I think instead we ought to be saying, now, Lord, I know what I believe and I know why it's right and I know why it's true. But, Lord, how should it be changing me? And what in my life is disconsonant with this truth that I so heartily embrace? What in my life doesn't match up? And that's what we ought to be bringing to the Lord. Let's bow together tonight. As a musician comes to play, Miss Connie's going to play for us. The altar's open. If you need to come and pray for yourself, come pray for yourself. If you need to come pray for another one, come pray for another one. But I can't imagine how any of us, 
I'm not trying to pad an altar call. If God gives you liberty to be in your seat, be in your seat. That don't offend me. But I just can't imagine for any of us how there's not areas of our life that we could say, now, Lord, I want to be more ready in this area. I want you to get more glory out of this area of my life. I want it. I want to live a life unashamed at your appearing and at your coming. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.